In today's episode of AMinder, we'll talk all about functional connectivity of different networks in the brain and changes to brain structure and volume in Alzheimer's disease. This includes how these changes in the brain relate to cognitive changes, behavioral symptoms, and other neuropathological markers. There are many fascinating studies to hear about today, so let's get to it. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Ellen Kosh, for today's episode, which covers papers published in January 2023 about brain imaging and functional connectivity in Alzheimer's disease. If you're new to the show, welcome! And if you're a seasoned listener, thanks for coming back. Every month here at Aminder, we sort and summarize the latest research on Alzheimer's disease to help people who are doing research, as well as anyone else interested in getting these updates. By the way, you'll hear me refer to Alzheimer's disease as AD from now on in this episode, and mild cognitive impairment as MCI. The goal of our show is to give a brief, unbiased overview of all the papers published each month. That being said, I'll just be summarizing the abstracts today, and I won't be vetting the papers myself to make sure the methods or the results are sound. If any paper interests you, you can find the numbered bibliography for today's episode in our show notes and use that to find the original paper and read it in more detail. You can also find the link to all our bibliographies in our show notes, which includes topics we aren't able to cover in full episodes. Some examples include genetic insights in AD, oxidative stress and metabolism, risk factors for Alzheimer's, and more. As well, you can find all our bibliographies at our website, aminder.com. That's A-M-I-N-D-R dot com. Before we get into this month's papers, I have a favor to ask. We're currently running a survey here at Aminder for our listeners to hear about what's working for you with the podcast and what could be improved on, or any other suggestions you might have. You have the chance to win a $15 gift card for doing the survey, so it's definitely worth your time, and it really helps us out a lot. We'll be taking your feedback seriously and using it to improve the podcast. Find the link to the survey in the show notes or on our website. Now, let's get into today's papers. Each month for this episode, I tend to vary the way that I divide up these abstracts depending on the specific batch of abstracts that I get. In the last episode, I divided the abstracts up by area of the brain studied, for example. Today's episode includes a lot of studies that focus on many different brain areas and networks together, so it made most sense to divide the papers up a different way this time. We have a lot of papers on functional connectivity. These studies usually use functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to investigate how different brain regions talk to each other and how this may be affected in AD. So we'll start with a section on papers focusing on functional connectivity within and between brain networks. Next, we'll have a few papers investigating excitation inhibition balance in AD and hyperexcitability of neurons using animal and computational models. 
We'll end with a couple papers that look at structural changes in the brain in AD patients. There is some overlap between these sections. For example, some papers look both at functional connectivity and structural changes, so I recommend listening to the full episode if you're interested in either of those topics. The timestamps for each section are also in the show notes, in case you want to skip ahead. To kick off our functional connectivity section, we have a couple papers that look at this in cognitively unimpaired older adults. The first of these is Associations Between Insulin-Like Growth Factor 1 and Resting State Functional Connectivity in Cognitively Unimpaired Midlife Adults. This paper is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Lee and last author Willett, and the authors are associated with universities in Iowa, USA. These researchers were interested in insulin-like growth factor 1, an important hormone similar in structure to insulin. This hormone is known to be involved in AD. Here, the authors looked at the relationship between this hormone and network activity of various neural networks measured by functional MRI. This was a large study using data from over 13,000 participants in the UK Biobank. Their analysis techniques included using linear mixed models to regress IGF-1 against functional connectivity measures for each neural network, and they also looked at interactions with genetic risk factors, sex, family history, and more. In terms of network activity, higher levels of IGF-1 was associated with increased activity of the right executive function neural network, increased sensory motor and cerebellar networks in young participants, aged 40 to 52, were associated with IGF-1, whereas this association wasn't present in the older participants. They also reported interactions of IGF-1 with genotype and sex that may modify the relationship between IGF-1 and visual, motor, and cognitive processing neural network activity. There was a lot to sift through in this abstract, so make sure to consult the full paper for all the details on their results. Next, we have paper number two, which is published in Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Gavramani and last author Ismail, and the authors are associated with the University of Calgary. This paper is called Functional Connectivity and Mild Behavioral Impairment in Dementia-Free Elderly. Mild behavioral impairment is similar to mild cognitive impairment, but refers to neuropsychiatric symptoms rather than cognitive symptoms that can precede dementia. MBI, which is what I'll be referring to this syndrome as, isn't studied as much as MCI, so Garamani et al. wanted to look at how this disorder correlates with functional connectivity in the brain. To do this, they used resting state fMRI to study functional connectivity of the default mode network and salience network. Data from 32 people with MBI and 63 without were used in this study, and analysis techniques included seed-based connectivity analysis using the CON fMRI toolbox. Check out the abstract or paper itself for the details of this analysis. People with MBI showed reduced functional connectivity between the posterior cingulate and medial prefrontal cortex, both parts of the default mode network, compared to controls. While for the salience network, those with MBI had reduced functional connectivity between anterior cingulate and left anterior insula. These changes to functional connectivity link MBI with Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, 
potentially helping with early detection of AD. I personally think more research to see how these functional changes relate to behavioral symptoms of MBI would be really interesting. Paper number three is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and is titled Increased Functional Connectivity of the Precuneus in Individuals with a Family History of Alzheimer's Disease. It comes from authors in Kansas, uh, University of Kansas, and the first author is Green, last author is Honia. The authors of this paper were interested in the default mode network and medial temporal lobe, two commonly affected areas in Alzheimer's disease. They wanted to see how connectivity of the default mode network and the volume of the medial temporal cortex were affected in cognitively healthy people who had a family history of AD compared to those who did not have a family history. In addition, they compared these individuals to those with mild cognitive impairment or early stages of AD. Medial temporal cortex volume was decreased in the MCI and AD groups as expected as well as default mode network connectivity. Interestingly, the authors reported that those with a family history of AD actually had increased connectivity of the default mode network compared to those who did not have a family history of AD. So this suggests that those at risk of developing AD may have compensatory mechanisms at play in the default mode network. In particular, They found that the precuneus and frontal regions had increased connectivity in the cognitively healthy individuals with family history of AD compared to all the other groups. This is definitely a topic worth studying more and can shed light on why some people at risk of AD develop the disease while others are able to avoid it. Next, we get into a few papers on functional connectivity in individuals with Alzheimer's disease or MCI Starting with paper number four, published in Neuroscience Research, we have Determination of Affected Brain Regions at Various Stages of Alzheimer's Disease. There are just four authors, Ahmed, Javed, Athar, and Shahzadi, and the authors are all affiliated with institutions in Pakistan. This study used a convolutional neural network model to separate cases of Alzheimer's disease from MCI using fMRI resting state data. They focused on six brain regions known to be affected in AD, the cuneus, precuneus, calcarine cortex, middle frontal gyrus, superior frontal gyrus, and frontal superior medial gyrus. They used data from the ADNI database that comprised 1880 patients who converted from MCI to stage 3 AD. From what they reported in the abstract, my understanding is that they took all of their data from these 18 participants at different stages of disease progression. Their results were the following. Their CNN model had almost 95% accuracy in separating stage 1 AD from MCI, 97% accuracy in separating stage 2 AD from MCI, and the highest accuracy, almost 98%, at separating stage 3 AD from MCI. It would be interesting to further explore how this model performs on other datasets. I'd also be interested to see how this could be used to distinguish AD from other dementias, like frontotemporal dementia, for example. Paper number five is published in eBiomedicine by first author Chen and last author Liu. 
and the authors are from institutions across China. The title of this paper is Altered Global Signal Topography in Alzheimer's Disease. The focus of these researchers was on how changes to signaling in local areas contribute to changes in global activity in Alzheimer's disease. My understanding of the global signal in fMRI data is that this is a grand average of the signals from the whole brain or from large portions of the brain, such as sensory cortices or prefrontal areas. Previously, global signals were mostly ignored in research because they were thought to be dominated by physiological activity and noise, but there is new interest in looking at the global signal topography in recent years. I'll be referring to global signal as GS for the rest of this abstract. They looked at how this is affected in fMRI scans from over 1,300 participants with either MCI or AD. Using the GS correlation, they reported that patients with AD had increased GS topography in the frontal lobe and decreased GS topography in hippocampus, cingulate gyrus, caudate, and middle temporal gyrus. I believe this is compared to people with MCI, but it's not clear in the abstract, so it's possible they were compared to healthy controls. Changes to GS topography correlated with cognitive ability, changes to functional network segregation, and AD genetic markers, though no more information on this is given in the abstract. The authors end by stating that looking at GS in AD can inform our understanding of this disease and the relationship between local activity and global signals in patients. Definitely check out the paper itself to get the important details about their methods and results. We end this section with paper number six, which is called The Effect of Hippocampal Radiomic Features and Functional Connectivity on the Relationship Between Hippocampal Volume and Cognitive Function in Alzheimer's Disease. This paper comes out of Institutions in Shanghai, China, by first author Du and last author Li, published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. It's well known that hippocampal volume is associated with cognitive function and affected in AD. This study wanted to see how hippocampal biomarkers correlate with the cognition-structure relationship in AD. I believe this refers to the relationship to changes in the structure of the brain with cognitive changes associated with the disease. Radiomics is a mathematical analysis method that can reveal features that are not obvious to the naked eye. It has been used in cancer research previously. Some examples of radiomic features that have been used in neuroscience research include textural features like coarseness or smoothness, or intensity features like uniformity. This study looked at radiomic features of the hippocampus and resting state functional connectivity in 70 AD patients and 65 healthy controls. They built a model that distinguished between AD and healthy controls using hippocampal features. However, you'll have to read the paper to get any information on this model, as well as the details of the features they identified. As for the results, the authors reported that hippocampal radiomic features mediated the correlation between bilateral hippocampal volume and cognition. Patients with AD showed various changes to functional connectivity, including stronger resting state connectivity between left hippocampus and insula. This resting state functional connectivity mediated the association between hippocampal volume and cognition in AD 
therefore highlighting the potential importance of connectivity between these regions. Radiomics is definitely not my wheelhouse, so please check out the paper to learn about this interesting technique and get more information about their results. That finishes off our functional connectivity section, and now it's time for a quick break and a word from some of our other team members. We'll be back in just a minute to talk about the rest of today's papers. I'm Lara from the bibliography team here at Aminder. Did you know the episode you're listening to has a numbered bibliography that you can find in our show notes or directly on our website? And all of our episodes come with their own bibliographies so that you can easily find and look into the papers that interest you. If you're also interested in keeping up to date with scientific publications in Alzheimer's research and working in collaboration with other teammates, we would love it if you consider joining us. Send your CV and an indication of what you're interested in doing with us to aminder.com podcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. For our next section, we have three papers on the topics of excitation inhibition balance and hyperactivity in the brain. Paper number seven of the episode is published in the journal Cell Reports by first author Nirala and last author Subramanian. They're affiliated with institutions in Kansas and Ohio, USA, and the title is Excitation Inhibition Imbalance Disrupts Visual Familiarity in Amyloid and Non-Pathology Conditions. This paper looks at hyperactivity of neurons in the cortex and how this might be related to memory deficits in AD. They used in vivo techniques to image neurons in the mouse visual cortex. It's not clear from the abstract if an AD mouse model was used and if so, which one. So please consult the paper for that info. The researchers report that at early stages of amyloid pathology, they found that apical dendrites in the visual cortex favor hyperactivity, and images presented to mice elicited hyperactivity of the neurons. They found that compensatory changes that maintain homeostatic levels of activity then occurred in these mice, and that these changes then led to disruptions to functional connectivity. Because of this, the selectivity of neuronal responses to natural images was impaired, leading to memory deficits. They also found that depriving the mice of some visual experiences could improve some of the visual memory deficits. Altogether, based on the results, the authors proposed a mechanism by which memory may be impaired in AD through a disruption of the excitation inhibition balance. This seems to me like a very interesting study, but I wasn't able to get a lot of the details of their experimental methods from the abstract, so I highly recommend you check out the full paper for that. 
Paper number eight is called A Multiscale Model Explains Oscillatory Slowing and Neuronal Hyperactivity in Alzheimer's Disease. The authors are Alexanderson, Dehan, Bick, and Gorielli, and they're affiliated with institutions in the Netherlands and in the UK. And the journal is the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. This study used computer modeling to visualize how amyloid beta and tau pathology affect the activity of neurons across the human brain. The basis for this work stems from research showing early-stage hyperactivation of neurons in AD and later neurodegeneration and slowing of neuronal oscillatory activity, and they wanted to see how amyloid beta and tau contribute to these changes. Their model was able to show that local neurotoxicity caused by pathological amyloid beta and tau protein contributed to both hyperactivity at early disease stages and hypoactivity at later stages. They tested various hypotheses in this study, but don't go into any detail on it in the abstract. So, once again, definitely a paper to check out if you're interested in the results of their model. Another model study comes to us with paper number nine, published in the Journal of Physiology by first author Mateg and last author Jedlika. They are associated with universities in Germany and in the UK. And the title of this one is Modeling the Contributions to Hyperexcitability in a Mouse Model of Alzheimer's Disease. The authors of this study were investigating the mechanisms underlying neuronal hyperexcitability in AD. They wanted to see how each of the following three proposed mechanisms contribute to AD symptoms. One, degeneration of dendrites, causing increased input resistance to neurons. Two, changes to ion channels, resulting in increased intrinsic excitability of neurons. Or three, altered excitation inhibition balance, caused by synaptic changes. This study used computer modeling, specifically biophysically realistic multi-compartmental modeling, a TEEK to model neuronal excitability. They used this to model CA1 pyramidal neurons from wild-type mice and an APPPS1 mouse model of AD. Using their simulations, they found three mechanisms that may be causing increased CA1 pyramidal neuron firing in the AD mouse model, which align with some of the scenarios that were mentioned at the start of the abstract. The first is an enhanced excitation inhibition ratio. The second is downregulation and upregulation of various ion channels along with enhanced excitation inhibition ratio. And lastly, increased excitatory burst input to the neurons. Based on this, the authors suggest that changes to network activity and ion channels could be causing increased excitability of these neurons in AD. To close the show, we'll go through three papers that focus in on structural changes in the brain. First is one that looks at the relationship between atrophy in the brain and psychiatric symptoms in AD patients. Paper number 10 is titled, Persistent Depressive Symptoms Are Associated with Frontal Regional Atrophy in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease. It's published in the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry by first author Sinclair and last author Ballard. Actually, there's only two authors plus the ADNI database, and they are associated with institutions in the UK. 
Depression is a common psychiatric condition in AD, and this paper looked at how regional brain atrophy correlates with depression ratings in AD patients. Data were analyzed from both the ADNI and NACC databases when at least one MRI scan was available per patient. Depression was assessed using the Geriatric Depression Scale and Neuropsychiatric Inventory. Based on these ratings, patients were categorized as intermittent depressive symptoms if they had one episode above the thresholds, and persistent depressive symptoms if they had at least two episodes. They analyzed data from over 600 patients from each of the databases, so over 1,200 total. For the NAC or NACC database, the authors reported no differences in baseline regional brain volume or differential atrophy between the depression groups. For the ADNI database, they found increased brain atrophy in frontal brain areas, but they didn't say in which group. I'm assuming they mean in the persistent depression group. Overall, the conclusion is that frontal brain regions may have increased regional atrophy associated with depression in AD, but due to the inconsistent results, I think more research is warranted on this topic. If you're interested in how psychiatric symptoms present in AD, make sure to check out Judy's episode on cognitive and behavioral changes. Every month, she dives into research that examines symptoms of AD, including cognitive deficits, psychiatric symptoms like depression, apathy, or anxiety, and other things like motor symptoms and more. I used to host this one, so I know firsthand it's a really interesting topic for anyone studying AD or other neurological conditions. Paper number 11 is published in the Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow Metabolism by first author Zhang and last author Li. Authors are affiliated with institutions in China and in the USA. The title is In Vivo Synaptic Density Loss Correlates with Impaired Functional and Related Structural Connectivity in Alzheimer's Disease. It's well known that in AD, synaptic loss occurs in the brain. These authors wanted to know how synaptic changes relate to functional and structural connectivity in the brain, as well as cognitive function. They measured synaptic alterations by using PET imaging to measure binding of synaptic vesicle glycoprotein 2 and functional MRI to analyze functional connectivity, including diffusion tensor imaging to track white matter tracks. The study involved 33 AD patients, 31 MCI patients, and 30 controls. The authors only reported the results of the AD group in the abstract. This included lower synaptic density in the bilateral cortex and hippocampus compared with controls. Cognitive decline correlated with changes to synaptic density of right insular cortex and bilateral caudal middle frontal gyrus. Additionally, they report that the AD group had lower probability of tract between right middle frontal gyrus and superior frontal gyrus. This means that there was a lower probability of a white matter tract passing through given voxels for the AD group compared to controls. Altogether, this abstract suggests that synapse loss contributes to changes in functional and structural connectivity in AD, though it's not clear what the results were in the MCI group. The last paper of our episode is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Gillenhammer, last author Ekman. And the title is, The Association Between Temporal Atrophy and Episodic Memory is Moderated by Education in a Multicenter Memory Clinic Sample. 
These authors are associated with institutions in Stockholm, Sweden, and London, UK. Cognitive reserve is a phenomenon by which factors such as education, lifestyle, and more can protect people from some of the effects of aging and disease, like AD. For example, people who attained higher education or have a mentally demanding career may have higher cognitive reserve. The authors of this paper explore the relationship between years of education, episodic memory, and degeneration of the medial temporal lobe. This was a cross-sectional study in an ecological multi-center memory clinic. They had about 700 participants, 99 of which had subjective cognitive impairment, and the rest had either MCI or dementia. They analyzed neuropathology of the medial temporal lobe with MRI and CT images. The effect of education was analyzed separately for all the groups using weighted least squares regression and multiple regression. Two episodic memory tests were used to create a composite score for episodic memory. The authors controlled for age and gender and found a high interaction between medial temporal atrophy and years of education. When the atrophy in the medial temporal lobe was low, high education individuals had better episodic memory. But interestingly, when atrophy was high in the medial temporal lobe, the individuals with high education had the worst episodic memory of all the groups. The effects of education were positive on episodic memory for patients with subjective memory decline or mild cognitive impairment, but not for dementia. Thus, it seems according to this study that education may be protective to an extent when neurodegeneration in the brain is low, but once neurodegeneration worsens or increases and patients progress to full dementia, education does not have its protective effect anymore. And that's it. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of our episode. If you want to check out any of the papers I covered today in more detail, be sure to find the citations for them in our numbered bibliography, available for free in the show notes or on our website. If you enjoyed listening today, one amazing, amazing thing you could do for us is rate and review us on your podcast app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Every review helps us reach more listeners just like you. So thank you in advance if you leave us a review or a rating on your app of choice. Also, remember that we have a survey out for a limited time. You can find the link in the show notes, our website, or on our social media pages, especially Instagram and Twitter. And by doing the survey, you're entered to win a free gift card. Next month, I won't be able to host this episode or the synaptic transmission one, unfortunately, that I usually host, but these episodes will still be available as bibliographies. You can also find the previous episodes on this topic, if you want to brush up on the research from the past few months or years, on our website, you can search for any topic that interests you and find all the episodes on that topic going back to 2020. You also may be interested in our episodes on treatments targeting neuroprotection, hosted by Anusha, and treatments targeting neurotransmission, hosted by Christy this month. That episode by Christy is coming out this Wednesday. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the work and commitment of our amazing team of volunteers. The sorting team were responsible for taking the hundreds of Alzheimer's disease abstracts this month 
and sorting them into bite-sized topics. Christy reviewed my script, audio editing was done by Scott, and Anusha reviewed the audio editing. She also created the podcast Music, and you can find more of her work at AK Music on YouTube or on SoundCloud under her name, Anusha Kamesh. Saladin made today's bibliography, and Laura created the word cloud. And with that, I hope you found this podcast useful and accessible today. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you again soon.